and welcome back to the Rerooted podcast. Today we're joined by the brilliant botanist, writer and nature communicator Leif de Sweden. Leif recently finished a PhD at Kew Gardens where he focused on the fascinating reproductive behaviour of four types of orchids or, to put it a little more salaciously, the secret sex life of anthropomorphic orchids. Leif is also the author of two highly commended books, Where the Wildflowers Grow and The Orchid Hunter, both recounting his journeys around Britain and Ireland in search of fascinating plant life. Over the course of the Rerooted podcast, we spend quite a lot of time talking about how we are all part of nature and the natural world, but perhaps sometimes plants are a little overlooked. So it's really fantastic to be having this conversation with Leif and hearing the intriguing and dramatic stories that plants have to tell us. Absolutely. It felt like Leif's mission was to encourage us all to pay a little bit more attention to the plants between the cracks in the pavements and the nature that can be found in the most unexpected of places. So we really hope you enjoy this conversation with Leif and let's get into the episode. Well, hello Leif. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. We're so excited to have you on. So I came across your, your work um, a little while ago. I started following you on Instagram. I think I'd seen you through somebody. I feel like I follow loads of nature people and everyone's reposting each other all the time and it's wonderful. Um, but sort of loved your content and I was really sort of, I didn't know much about plants. I sort of, again, I've got plants behind me and I, I honestly couldn't tell you what they are, which, they are, which is terrible. Um, but I sort of loved your like enthusiasm for it and your sort of sheer joy every time that you seem to be sort of posting anything or engaging with plants and so I suppose I'd love to kick off by asking you how you got so interested in this and why it, it sparked so much joy in you and sort of yeah your journey into becoming a botanist. Yeah so it actually began with animals um, which a lot of people are surprised to hear but yeah when I was sort of four five six years old um, my dad got me into birds and beetles. They were his sort of big thing. And we would go bird watching in the winters. Um, and in the summers, we'd go and look for little insects and, and spiders and things in the long grass behind the house. And we'd collect them using this um, sweep net, which he made out of like an old, um, like, a, like a coat hanger twisted into a ring, then an old bed sheet, which is the net, and then a broom handle stuck on the side. We used to go sweep this through the grass and, and collect all sorts of living things. And I, um, you know, we'd take them home in little jam jars and identify them and then release them into the garden again. And I just swiftly became completely obsessed with anything that moved. I loved it. Um, I completely lived for it. Like every day at school was spent, um, just sort of daydreaming and just longing for the end of the day so I could get outside and go and spend some time in the woods and the fields looking for, for animals. Um, but yeah, I just remember this kind of like intense frustration because whenever I got within a few meters, if I was lucky, um, of what I was trying to look at, it would just run away from me or fly away. And as a kid, I just didn't get it. I was like, why? All I want to do is give you some love, some time and attention. It's all I want. Um, but they would always uh, just fly away from me. And so I was kind of left with the plants at my feet, which obviously couldn't run away from me. and was sort of forced there, uh, forced to sit there while I um, stared at them for as long as I liked. And to this day, that 
remains the most exciting thing about plants is the fact that they don't move. Um, I think, you know, we're so used to hearing it as the complete opposite that plants are boring because they don't move. But actually, the fact they, but the fact they're stuck rooted to the spot means you can look at them really closely. You can spend as long as you like, you know, looking at the ways that they live in their different environments and really get to know them much faster in, and in a sort of very immediate way um, compared to most animals. So, yeah, it's a uh, it's a group of organisms that I sort of fell in love with as, as a child as I realised that. You know, they face all the same challenges as animals on a day-to-day basis. They got to put food on the table. They got to reproduce. They got to make sure they don't get eaten by predators. Um, but unlike most animals, of course, they've got that added complication of being rooted to the spot. And so the fascination for me has always been asking the question, just how, how on earth do they do it? How do they thrive in exactly the same world as animals? but being out without being able to move. And that is a question that I have never been able to fully answer because there's always another plant that does something else weird and wacky in order to survive. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a question that has uh, just like carried me through my uh, entire life and into the career that I'm, I'm doing now. So I, I want to ask, I think when people get interested in the natural world and I guess you said it yourself like being a child we often are drawn to the animal world why why do you think that is why why do we why do we spend so much time thinking about animals I guess relatively proportionately to the interests that often that we would have for plants what what's that about I think a lot of it is initially to do with um like relatability um obviously animals are slightly more relatable well most of them are slightly more relatable than plants are just because a lot of them will have recognizable features like faces or eyes or these things that we sort of see in ourselves um and so a lot of the work i do is trying to show people ways in which they can engage with plants um because obviously you know if you find a i don't know a little insect or a bird or something you can kind of um yeah you can sort of almost see more understand more of its behavior because it's much more similar to our own behaviors um you can pick a little insect up and you know have a good look at it whereas with something like a plant it might seem less obvious and so um you know i try and get people to do things like i don't know it might just be something as simple as getting down on the ground and looking at plants from plant height rather than head height which just completely changes uh, the way you view the thing um, but I think also that we are taught from a very young age that plants are boring. Uh, we literally learn it. I mean, I uh, I remember having a biology teacher apologize to the class because we had to spend a couple of lessons covering plants. And then, you know, oh, then we can go back to doing the animals. But I'm really sorry, we've got to do plants for a couple of lessons and I remember thinking this is ridiculous because I'm so excited because we get to do plants for two lessons and here's the teacher kind of like making it out as this really bad thing that we just have to do in order to do the animal stuff and so we literally learn it at school you know from parents from from whoever and um yeah we I think this this sort of mindset of plants are boring that that comes of that 
um, just acts as this barrier to us learning about all the incredible things that plants do and all the amazing stories that they have to tell that we never get to hear because we tend to just then dismiss them as being boring or go look at the animals or something else entirely. Um, when, yeah, we, we, we miss all the amazing dramatic stories that go on with plants that are just as, you know, are just as incredible as, as all these things with animals. But, um, yeah, we, we never get to hear them because of that sort of early onset, um, learning that, that plants are boring. Yeah. I think a little bit that when you look at a lot of wildlife, um, a lot, a lot of the kind of wildlife programs that are so wonderful, they tend to be focused around quite human emotions. I was listening to something about this the other day about somebody talking who makes them and they were saying that to get people engaged, uh, often it's about humor or jeopardy or kind of actually quite human emotions that they then try and represent in the animal world. So that becomes super relatable. I guess that hasn't been so much the case with plants. So it's like that relatability thing. Exactly. So what I've tried to do in the last few years is... So yeah, I, I sort of had that realization as well that I was looking at the ways in which these big documentaries like David Asper and things talk about these animal stories. And yeah, it's very obvious that they play into human emotions, which is, I think, a really good thing because it makes animals, makes wildlife more, more relatable, which is only going to help us care more. But then I was watching things that were plant related and it was just a completely different way of speaking about them. And so I decided I was going to make an active choice to talk about plants in the same ways that I do animals. And, you know, I use just slightly different language. So I talk about plants being creatures, like they're wild creatures and I don't see why they're not, you know what I mean? Cause they're, you know, they're living things and you only have to, to look at a plant in like a time-lapse film to see just how alive they are they're moving around just as much as animals they're just yeah doing it a lot more slowly um so yeah i think making an active choice to use the same language and um talk about plants in the same way as we do animals is a really important thing and i think um the recent uh david asmore documentary the green planet did this really well um they now that technology has sort of reached this point where it's so good that they can film plants so that they appear in the same way as the animals do um they can capture all of the drama and the excitement and all of this stuff going on in a way that we just never been able to see before and that was really nicely reflected i thought in the language that david Attenborough was using to narrate it because he was telling these stories in the same way as he does, you know, when like a cheetah is chasing an antelope or whatever. Um, and that for me was so exciting. And I had so many of my friends sending me messages being like, Oh my goodness, I had no idea plants had did any of this. I didn't realize there was, you know, so alive. I was like, I've been telling you this for so long. <laughs> um, yeah. Were you not listening to me? I know. <laughs> and it, yeah, it's just, it's just so interesting how it is, yeah, when it's like, I don't know, it's the big expert, David Attenborough, and that film, rather than just someone's talking about it, it's actually seeing it makes such a big difference. Um, so, yeah, I was thrilled that they, hopefully, yeah, if they do another one, they will, um, yeah, 
capture that sort of excitement in the same way. But I thought that was done really, really well. Because mm, otherwise it can just feel a bit inaccessible, can't it? It's like so much of it is like Latin words and like amazing if you can speak Latin. But like otherwise you're just sort of looking at it and being like, <laughs> I love these beautiful things that I can see in front of me, but I have absolutely no idea what this means. And therefore you just can't engage with it in the same way. Whereas like a tutor obviously is very accessible. Um, and on the topic of language, I was, I think I read this on your website and you were talking about that. I think I wrote it down. It's the secret sex life of anthropomorphic orchids. And I was just like, this is the best thing I've ever read. <laughs> Can you tell us about these sort of mad rampant orchids? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, I can. So, um, Basically, there are there are four orchids uh, in this country that have petals that look like little people. So they've got arms and legs, um, and sometimes uh, what I will call tails for the purposes of this podcast. Um, <laughs> and yeah, they literally look like little uh, little figurines um, on this the petals of this plant. Um, and yeah, they're all very rare in this country. Uh, some more so than others. Um, they're called monkey, lady, military, and man orchids. And uh, yeah, I studied them uh, for a while, trying to work out, um, well, yeah, a bit about their genetics and 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 how they work. Because when these plants grow in the same place, they will just reproduce like crazy they cannot keep their hands off one another um they don't care about species boundaries uh they just kind of go for it so uh down in the south of france where these plants are all really really common and they will literally sort of grow you know along the road verge um they yeah form these sort of big mixed populations where you have two species three species four species all growing together and you get this sort of um, spectrum of intermediate individuals. Uh, so some are 50-50 where the two parents have, have re reproduced together and produced something that's kind of half monkey orchid, half lady orchid, for example. Um, and then those, um, hybrid individuals then reproduce further with each other and with both parents and with third species. So it's this big sort of genetic soup, um, of, of these four species and I yeah was trying to work out why they sort of stay as four different species rather than just kind of merging into one big super species um but yeah they're great they're a really really good group for yeah public engagement with plants because obviously they are perhaps the most relatable a plant can be because they've got arms and legs and <laughs> um yeah tails I love it I really love it yeah, I loved the one that you spoke about. Um, and I don't know if this is in the same family. Um, I might, again, it might be my sort of plant ignorance coming here, but the one you spoke about at the Earth Summit that looked had a flower that looked like a wasp. That was incredible. Oh, this is just amazing. Okay, so we have a group of orchids here in the UK, well, and in Europe, but here in the UK that have evolved to exploit the sexual desire of male insects. <laughs> so... <laughs> So what happens, basically, we've got four species here in the UK, um, and they've all evolved this mechanism. And um, I'll talk about the fly orchid, which is um, one of one of the best ones. Now, the fly orchid has evolved, yeah, to exploit the sexual desire of a male digger wasp 
um, which is called Argogorites mustaceus. It doesn't actually have an, an English name. Um, so it's this one species of digger wasp pollinates this one orchid, and that's it. It's like a one-to-one relationship. So what this what the orchid has done is it's um yeah, it basically markets itself as a bunch of female digger wasps um on a on a plant. So these digger wasps, the males will emerge um earlier in the spring than the females will. So there's this period of time when there are males flying around, flying around, but no females. And these orchids have timed their flowering period to coincide with this period of time where there are just, just males flying around. Now, to a male digger wasp, uh, the flower of a fly orchid looks, smells, and feels uh, exactly like a female. So this flower will... Uh, it looks like an insect. Um, its petals are furry and everything. There's di- different textures all over the, the petal. And in their scent, they emit the exact same chemical compounds emitted by a female uh, in her pheromones. So like to this male digger wasp, you know, he it just is a female, the, the flowers of this plant. So he's flying around. Uh, he's just emerged and um, he's got one job just find a female to mate with pass on his genes to the next generation um but of course there aren't any females flying around uh, not that he knows that and he comes across a fly orchid and he sees what he perceives um to be a female resting on the flowers uh with her head buried amongst the petals and he thinks great this is my lucky day i've scored um, and he flies down, he lands on the flower and still completely convinced that this is a female, he attempts to mate with the flower. Now, while this is happening, uh, the fly orchid um, will drop two little sacks of pollen, which stick to the back of um, the, be- the uh, wasp's head. And yeah, the wasp has absolutely no idea what's going on. Um, you know, he's on cloud nine, having a great time, um, but completely unaware of this whole sort of um, fraud which is happening so after a while um our male digger wasp starts getting a little frustrated by the lack of action and buzzes off in search of a more enthusiastic partner and uh, so he's flying around again you know looking for a female and he comes across uh, a new population of fly orchids completely falls for the ruse all over again and in attempting to mate with this next flower uh, deposits that pollen on the back of his head onto the female reproductive surface on the flower and pollinates the orchid. So it's this just extraordinary, extraordinary process. Um, it's so clever. It's so sophisticated. And my favorite thing about it is that this entire fraud is masterminded by a plant. Um, and I always love it when the plants get one over on the animals. Um, but yeah, <laughs> so there are some amazing, amazing things. Like- What's happening in terms of we well, we know what's happening in terms of the insect world and just the I want to say sort of obliteration, I guess, of some of our insect populations. Clearly, you've just given and like just one amazing example of the interaction between the plant world and the insect world. Is that I'm guessing keeping you awake at night, that idea of what's happening out there with, with insects and what that means for plants? Yes. Um, yeah, it does. <laughs> um, yeah, so yes, our insects are in an absolutely awful situation. Um, 
And yeah, that is definitely bad news for plants. Um, plants are also in an awful, awful situation that, you know, obviously gets talked about less because those plants aren't, say, directly responsible for pollinating our crops or that sort of thing. Um, I am more worried, to be honest, about the decline in our native plant species. Um, it's, yeah, it's really, really uh, shocking, particularly when, you know, you go out into the, well, just anywhere in the country, to be honest, and you just see the complete lack. Oh, yeah, as a botanist, I see the complete lack of species diversity um, like everywhere I go. And yeah, that is deeply worrying because obviously the decline in insects is absolutely terrifying and completely awful. But plants, you know, they're the building blocks of our ecosystems. Um, they support everything, all of life, um, whether directly or indirectly. And yeah, I think obviously the ways that our insects are declining are often directly related to humans you know it might be us spraying pesticides or, or whatever it might be but i think yeah our our declining plants are almost a bigger problem because so much depends on on them i suppose what it speaks to is the interconnected nature of the natural world that nothing is you know nothing exists in isolation um, yeah, it, you know, a, a problem for one part of the natural world is a problem for all of us, I guess. Yes. So I think about 80% of plants have flowers. And of those, I can't remember the exact percentage, but a large number of those plants are pollinated by insects. Not all of them. There are some that are pollinated by the wind, um, maybe by you know, mammals, birds globally speaking um here in the uk it's pretty much all insect or wind wind pollination but yeah a lot of them are pollinated by insects um some of those are you know generalist species they'll happily accept you know any insect pollinators maybe you know if they're a bee or a wasp or you know a fly that's that's best but a lot of them will quite happily accept lots and lots and lots of different different insects. Um, but yeah, things like the fly orchid are extremely vulnerable because they are only pollinated by one species of insect. And so as soon as that goes, then you've got a real problem. Um, and actually, that actually happened to one of the other uh, insect-mimicking species. So the bee orchid, um, which is still very common in the UK, um, has... Basically, either its pollinator got wiped out and became extinct, or it's maybe moved on to a different orchid species. We don't really know. But in order to adapt, um, the bee orchid has had to make this sort of drastic lifestyle change. Uh, and it now pollinates itself, which currently is fine. It's doing really, really well. Um, it's, you know, certainly in the top half of our commoner uh, orchid species. But yeah, long term, I suspect it will really, really struggle with climate change um, because that lack of genetic diversity means that uh, plants are less able to cope with 
big changes and sudden changes in the environment, like like with climate change. So, um, yeah, so it is possible to keep existing if your one individual pollinator is gone. But uh, yeah, it's generally, <laughs> as you might, might not be surprised to hear, not a good thing. <laughs> and so the UK, like we know, has a pretty rubbish track record <laughs> in terms of... In terms of... And it's weird, isn't it? Because like on the one hand, as 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 a nation... You've only got to look at TV programs to think how much we love the yeah. environment. We love gardening. Yeah. Like, so what? what's even going on there? I don't know. That's a big question. <laughs> yeah, it is a big question. But I know exactly what we mean. You know, we're this nation that arguably knows more about the wildlife that we have and have had here than any other nation in the world uh, in terms of, like, the biological records that are kept. Um, we are celebrated for, you know, people like Darwin and everyone, all these big um, biologists and naturalists um, working here in the UK in the past. And yeah, we love, as you say, we love David Attenborough and we love all these extraordinary documentaries and we love gardening. And, um, you know, we have this deep traditional cultural love for farming and, you know, being on the land and, and getting to know the land. And yet we are, as is self-and quoted now, one of the most uh, nature depleted countries in the world, which I think, you know, it gets, that phrase gets used a lot and it's, it's true, but I think it loses its weight. Um, I think it's almost lost its, yeah, it's lost its sting, um, which is a great shame because, I think so. For example, I spent, I've, you know, I've read so many things about the state of nature and had so many conversations about it. And I got to a point where I felt like I knew how bad things were. Um, but I also, because, you know, you're constantly um, hearing about this stuff and reading this stuff and talking about it, you, it kind of doubles your, um, your senses to it a bit. And so, um, yeah, a couple of years ago, I went around, um, I spent a year going around the country and um, I was traveling by train and my bike and I could see it all for the first time in my life. I could see this stuff, which I'd been reading about and hearing about. Um, and I, you know, I was traveling all through the year from um, literally from January to December. I was traveling from Cornwall all the way through, you know, up through England and Wales Um even in Ireland as well, all the way up to northern Scotland, even all the way up as far as Shetland. So it really was all over the country. And yeah, all I saw from the train window and from my bike saddle was just complete and utter ecological devastation everywhere I went. And it was just, it was deeply shocking in a way that I hadn't really anticipated because yeah, I thought I knew how bad it was, but doing that made me realize that I had absolutely no idea. Um, and it's something which, you know, is hard to talk about, but I think it's very important to talk about because the state of things is, it's not just like bad. It's like, it really, it really shook me. And it's the thing which, um, I really took away from that. Yeah. I went to see lots of amazing habitats and met a lot of amazing people and saw a lot, 
a lot of amazing plants, but overriding all of this was this sense of, wow, things are just so much worse than I thought. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, and I sort of take any opportunity to talk about it now, not because I want to depress people, but because I want to sort of share that to try and shock people out of the comfort zone that I was in before or not comfort zone, but that state of thinking, Oh, you know, things are bad, but life goes on. Um, now I sort of feel like things are really bad and we absolutely have to do something about it. So I've got to tell people how bad it is. Otherwise we're just going to sit here not doing anything about it or not enough about it. Um, and I'm not talking necessarily about individuals here. I'm talking about, because obviously, you know, we can recycle as much as we like, but ultimately the big changes are going to have to come from um, our government if they decide to do anything about it. <laughs> when you look around the world, where, you know, where do you, where do you think, where are they getting it right? What's, what does good look, uh, someone, I don't know, someone like Costa Rica, for example, are there good examples of where they're looking after their plant life and their natural ecosystems? And, you know, like, what do we learn from places that are doing it well? Costa Rica are doing it very well. And it seems extraordinary to me that we aren't making more of an effort on like a government level to learn lessons from what they're doing. Um, but best of all, and this applies to all around the world, not to an individual country, uh, but indigenous communities are just, you know, surprise, surprise, doing it the best because, you know, it's the way it's always been done and it, it works and it's sustainable and it's really good for us. It's really good for nature. Um, and, you know, all around the world, it's always the case. So we should be learning a lot of lessons from indigenous communities for sure. But yeah, just going back to that, like the fact that you went on this journey and you you weren't expecting it to be this bad. And then you see sort of, yeah, what's going on in other countries. It must be so disheartening to sort of be like, I can see this. I'm talking about it. And other people are clearly doing it better. And then you come back here and no one seems to, well, people are doing things about it, but not enough people are doing things about it. Do you think that's because the people who are, and again, this is a big question, um, but the people who are, controlling these things aren't experiencing it they're not they see it as completely intangible they kind of look at a field and they're like oh that's nice and then they sort of don't actually go in and sort of look at it properly how do you think that we can be getting these people to understand and see these models of how other people are doing things and say oh okay I actually see the ecological destruction that you're talking about for oh, that's a big question <laughs> um <laughs> I, well, I have a lot of different thoughts probably most of which I'll forget but yeah, I think ultimately the the people who are making these decisions don't know nature. Um, they don't know what it's like to welcome the primroses back in the spring. They don't know what it's like, um, you know, to listen out for red wings coming back in the middle of the night uh, in the autumn. And obviously, if you don't know about something, you can't care about it. Um as you say, there are lots of really, really good um, projects and things and going going on all around the country. Um, lots of people are doing loads of really good work that shows it is working, that we can, you know, produce enough food 
while looking after nature um, and all that sort of thing. Um, there are lots of farms showing that it's po- not only possible, but like it just works really, really well. Um, there are lots of small but very hardworking organizations who are, yeah, looking after the land and, you know, I hate to say it, but like making money and like, you know, surviving in the 21st century. And we've sort of got to this point where we've shown in all of these different areas that it is possible to do it without damaging nature. You talked earlier about education and your experience of education around plants, our knowledge of nature, whether it's birds or plants or anything in the natural world. That's just somehow, I don't know, I'm thinking, was there a time maybe when people could wander into the countryside and they knew what wildflowers were and they could recognise birdsong? And many of us just can't do that anymore. Something's changed. So how you used a really great phrase about knowing nature how do we all, how do we change that? Because that feels to me fundamental. It's not just at policy government level. We've all got to know nature better. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, okay, so the first answer is urbanization. Obviously, there is less, there's still nature in cities, but there's less than there should be maybe um, outside of cities. Um, and so, yeah, we basically just don't live in the same places as abundant nature anymore. Um, so yeah, a really good example of this is um, I went to Shetland and I spent a week cycling around and, and while camping on Shetland and every I stopped every person I uh, met and I asked them about wild plants because I was really, really interested to sort of gauge the attitude towards botany in this sort of far-flung part of the country that was you know as far away from London as I could get and what was completely astounding to me although in hindsight maybe not that surprising is that every single person I talked to literally without exception could tell me something about the plants that were around us so it might have been you know I don't know, a couple by the side of the road who could tell me about the plants growing in the ditch alongside the alongside the road. Or um, you know, I would stop people in, in the grocery store and they might give me a, a recipe using a wild plant. Or I would go to cafes and people would tell me about um, a bit of folklore or something. Like everyone had a story to tell about, about the local plants. And while nature in Shetland is still very damaged, it's, it's still good nature there. Um, and obviously a much smaller population density and it felt like going back in time in a sense in the sense of you know this is what it must have been like across the country at some point you know everyone had that connection with their local plants or like yeah because they were there <laughs> to put it simply you know they were there when we took the dog for a walk or you know went to the shops or whatever it might be now, for most of us in the UK, that is not the case uh, in the same way, that we've lost that abundance in our day-to-day lives. And so I think the simplest way to fix it is to actually focus, um, well, yeah, two things. One on the farms, because farming, 70% of the countryside is used for agriculture. So if we can get more nature on that land, that's a huge thing 
in rural areas. Um, but obviously most people live in cities and towns and in urban areas, and that's only going to increase um, over the next 10, 20 years or so. And so I think that we need to really, really focus on reconnecting people in towns and cities to wild plants. And obviously when you're there and you're living a life in a city, you're not necessarily going to notice the plants in the pavement without anyone pointing them out, right? And so I think to the vast majority of people living in big cities, for example, they'd probably say that there was very little nature around other than like pigeons and maybe rats. Um, which, you know, as a botanist, I know isn't the case because there are loads of little things growing in the, in the cracks in the pavement. But yeah, so I think, I think to a, the general, an average member of the general public, there's probably not much nature at all, if any. And again, it goes back to that thing. Like if you, if you don't know about it, you can't care about it. And if there's nothing there to get to know, or if you don't see anything to, to get to know, then yeah, you can't care about it and you can't then extrapolate that out to, you know, the wider country. So I think focusing on things like stopping spraying glyphosate weed killer on our on our streets and um, sorting out our road verge cutting schemes and all that sort of thing to bring more obvious nature back into towns and cities um, and do that in a community-driven way, a community-led way, is a really, really important step because that then reconnects people to their local nature. And that's the biggest thing, right, is getting people connected to nature because then they care enough about it to do something about it. Long-winded answer to your question, but... <laughs> no, it's a brilliant answer. And I think it's so true because as somebody who lives in London but is from the countryside, it is like it's so stark. Like you kind of wander around and you can, you've obviously got trees and stuff around you. And you, yeah, as you said, you see the odd squirrel or the odd rat, but like you don't have that same relationship. And I, I lived in, I lived in Dublin earlier this year for a few months. And even Dublin being a city, it's obviously surrounded by the Dublin mountains. And within five, you can drive out of Dublin for sort of five minutes and you're in the countryside or you're by the sea. And it's just got a much more sort of holistic, natural experience than, say, London does. But for those people who are listening to this podcast that do live in somewhere like London or they do live in a sort of urban environment, where can they start with finding these sort of urban plants? Where can they sort of, yes, that your sort of head down, bottom up approach to, to <laughs> on sort of on the tube. Um, but no, but yeah. like where can they find these these urban plants? Where can they be looking to sort of refoster that connection with with nature? Literally on your doorstep is always my first first answer to that so we walk past on a day-to-day basis so many species that we just ignore or maybe see as just like green weeds maybe i hate that word um but yeah a lot of people will just either see green in cracks in the pavement not see that at all see little things they think are just weeds and they're all labeled as weeds um but actually if you stop and look and, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean getting down on the pavement, shoving your face into a pavement crack and sticking your bum in the air. Um, you can do that if you want because it's great fun and it's a great way to start conversations about nature. Um, but, yeah, all it takes is just just noticing as you're walking around the different kind of things which are, are living in the space that you live in. Um, and, yeah, that, whether that's on, the, on your doorstep, in your garden, on the street outside, uh, in those pavement cracks, around the bottom of a lamppost, 
Um, there are all sorts of uh, common species, but also, you know, um, cities are swiftly becoming one of our most biodiverse um, habitats here in the UK. You've got combinations of native plants that are adapting to this new habitat of, of urban environments. You've got plants that are escaping from gardens. Um, you've got plants that are coming in from around the world through, you know, um, ports and things. And yeah, our urban environments are actually a really, really exciting place to look for plants because of the sheer variety of stuff that you can find. Yeah, and it is amazing. It, or even now, I've been doing this for, you know, 20 plus years, but I'm still amazed whenever I do any sort of urban botany, just how much there is, you know, just like eking out a life in like a bit of concrete. It's just like mad what plants can do. Um, and again, some of the stories of just like the commonest urban plants are amazing. I often lead like urban plant walks um, and the joy on people's faces when they realize these really common things that they've been seeing all the time, whether they've noticed them or not. Um, and hearing about what they do is 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 brilliant. And it's it's frustrating not being able to sort of give that knowledge to a wider group of people. But um, I'm trying my best. You're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> and so last question for me is what is one sort of actionable thing someone who's listened to this can go and do to reconnect with sort of the plants around them um having listened to this and like undoubtedly feel very inspired um to be then be like okay i've listened to this if you live in a city if you live in the countryside what is the first like actionable thing you'd say someone could do to go and sort of reroute themselves for want of a better word to their sort of natural environment and the plants around them very good <laughs> <laughs> i had to throw it in <laughs> Did you see the way she did yeah. that? I wasn't even <laughs> expecting yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, I wow. used to work in marketing, okay. guys. <laughs> oh. uh, okay. okay, so the most basic thing you can do is just take the time to stop and notice. It's, it sounds like a really simple thing, and it is a really simple thing, but we go through life at such a pace and that, you know, even just like walking down the pavement between your front door and the car, you might be thinking about work, whatever. And it's so easy not to stop and look and notice. And I think if we can get into a habit of just noticing what we share our little world with, even if it is the only time you get to look at nature in the day is between the front door and the car in the morning. Just noticing what you're sharing that small space with can make such a big impact because then you're suddenly like, oh, okay, I might not know all their names, but I can recognize that there are like four different things here. And then you might see that somewhere else and then you might start learning their names. And learning names is such a powerful thing because it re really helps you care about something if you know its name. Yeah, and that's where the Botanical Society of Britain and Ireland come in. Or just like following botanists on social media is maybe even easier because then you'll just start to pick up names of the things that they're they're talking about. And hopefully they'd be talking about some of the nice common things which you find on your little commute between the front door and the car. <laughs> oh, I love that. That's excellent. I love oh, that. Thank you I love so that. much. Oh, I've loved this. This has been brilliant.
So we hope you enjoyed that episode of Rerooted, uh, where we spoke to Leif and learned so much about the plants all around us. Uh, I am planning to get a bit closer to the plants, get down on the ground with them, and hopefully that will have inspired you to do the same. Yeah, we all need a heads down, bottoms up approach to nature after that episode. So um, if you see me around North London with my bum in the sky, looking at some plants, then just carry on walking. <laughs> yeah, it's a yeah we'll know what you're up to. to. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but if you'd love to hear more from Leif, um, have a look at the links in the show notes to his um, Instagram and his amazing books. And please follow us on Instagram at rerootedpod to see when the next episode is going live. 